throughout the season of Lent, we have been looking at uh, the commands of Jesus that are found in the Sermon on the Mount as a way to understand uh, the life of denying ourselves that he calls us to, what that looks like and what that can look like in our lives now. So on this Palm Sunday, I want to turn your attention to another portion of the Sermon on the Mount that's found in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to an older generation, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subjected to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with a brother will be subjected to judgment. And whoever insults a brother will be brought before the council. And whoever says fool will be sent to fiery hell. So then, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your gift. Reach agreement quickly with your accuser while on the way to court or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the warden, and you will be thrown in prison. I tell you the truth, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. Father, in this moment of silence, by your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, perhaps in this silence, uh, many uh, can think of plenty of times where they were angry or in various different ways called somebody a fool. Um, so this threat of fiery hell may be ringing in our ears a bit. Uh, I pray, Lord, that as we uh, understand your work and your heart for us, uh, that we would be part of your kingdom of peace. So have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you heard the story. Thank you, Shana, for reading it aloud and, and um, loved seeing the kids walk around with palm branches. Um, I always, I, I take, I read the story of Palm Sunday literally. You know, what they're doing is they're putting their cloaks and the palm branches on the ground. So I'm like, well, Palm Sunday, we should be putting things on the ground and having people walk over them. But that's uh, neither here nor there. Um, so, what they're doing, though, is they're laying out essentially a red carpet for the king to enter into his royal city. But when Jesus was entering into his royal city, claiming to be the king, he was coming to a very divided place. He was coming to, in his words, a house divided against himself. There are groups of Jewish teachers and influencers who are pitted against each other in every which way on every topic. They're arguing over ceremonial laws surrounding the Sabbath and marriage, political issues like their relationship to Rome, what, what to do with taxes, behavior, the, the lifestyle of, of the Sanhedrin. People are vying for power. They're trying to protect the fragile power that they have. Um, you, lurking in the shadows, you've got groups that are preparing to you know, overthrow the Romans violently, the Zealots and the Sicarii. Some Jews have 
even abandoned Jerusalem altogether, and they've built an alternate community called Qumran, where finally we can be pure and not have Roman influence. There's a prophecy from the prophet Daniel, which you know, gave sort of this set of a, a, a number of years, and many of the Jews believed the time was now. Daniel's math had kind of played out, and so there are people arriving in Jerusalem all the time saying, I'm the guy, I'm the Messiah. Jesus seems like another one of those. Gosh, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is a powder keg. It's tense. Every relationship is tense. And so what a lot of messiahs would want to do is come in and rally people around their strength. Show them that I'm the guy who can do it. You know, let's, let's build the team around a superstar. You need a leader, a leader with courage, acumen, resources. You know, hope from God to be the new Joshua, the new one to cleanse the land of the, the you know, not the non-chosen people. Well, Jesus doesn't rally an army. His followers are ragtag. They're some awkward disciples, a crowd of recently healed people, maybe. Poor people. A, a military leader might come in and show his strength, have a parade, have some tanks, show your rocket launchers, show people what you got. Instead, he comes and he fulfills this, this odd prophecy from the prophet Zechariah. And in fact, Matthew connects it when Jesus rides on on this young donkey, the, the foal of a donkey. Matthew says, oh, this is from Zechariah. Take a look at it, that, that little line about humble and riding on a donkey. It's from this, this song in Zechariah where he says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's legitimate and victorious. Humble and riding on a donkey, a young donkey, the foal of a female donkey. I will remove the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be removed. Then he will announce peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. What did Zacharias say? He didn't say he would come in power and military might. He said he would come in humility. His words wouldn't be about conquest. They'd be about peace. He rides in on a donkey and then we hear him announcing peace to the nations, removing the war horse, the weaponry from the capital city. By riding in on a donkey, Jesus announces he's there to establish a kingdom of peace. And, and that actually has been his message all along. That's been his message all along. In fact, for anyone paying attention, peaceful relationships have been a primary emphasis in his teaching. We, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount to understand the kingdom Jesus brings and, and what life in his kingdom is meant to look like. So does he address peace in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I already read a bit of scripture aloud to you, but let me show you something. Um, this is the whole Sermon on the Mount, this next slide. Um, there you go. You got that? <laughs> Stephen, read for me the third line, please. Um, <clears throat> so, all right, that's the whole Sermon on the Mount. Now, how much of this addresses relationships, relational reconciliation, peace between people? Well, quite a bit of it, actually. 
Jesus returns to the topic again and again and again. From the back, you can just see yellow, hopefully, at least. There's a lot there that Jesus is talking about, but he, he's, even the, some of the white that I didn't make yellow is reinforcing this, this command to reconciliation. But if we're honest, peace in our relationships is a really lovely idea right up until the moment that someone makes you angry. Right? I mean, that's just the simple truth. When someone makes you angry, you're like justified in being angry, you think. Right? The, the 19th century Russian novelist, Fyodor Dostoevsky, famously wrote in his book, The Brothers Karamazov, I am amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular. In my dreams, I would have gone to the cross for people if it were somehow suddenly necessary, and yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for even two days. As soon as someone is there close to me, his personality oppresses my self-esteem and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I can begin to hate even the best of men. One, because he takes too long eating his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I mean, we love the generic idea of peace. All of us do. Gosh, Littleton Christian Church, unity is one of our four core values. It's one of our big things, rooted in the gospel, growing in humility, pursuing unity, and living in generosity. It's a lovely idea. Don't Like a community that shows the love of Jesus and the way we're connected to and united with one another, the way we love one another here in this church and in the church upstairs and the church in the gym and the church down the street and all, you know, united. We love that idea. But Dostoevsky knows the hard truth all too well. Unity actually happens one messy relationship at a time. That is the slowest and the fastest it can possibly go. One messy relationship at a time. You know, every one of you have your little quirks and you know it. You have your own special way of being unreasonable. You have your own creative ways to be selfish. Some of you are really good at hiding it, but you do. Sometimes you're exciting and sometimes you are just deadly boring. Sometimes you don't smell good. Sometimes you're grumpy, distant, harsh. Sometimes you're a pushover. I could go on. <laughs> and I'm talking specifically about you. Um, and you know what? You know all of that stuff is true about the people around you too, right? It's definitely true about your kids. I mean, they were cute with the palm branches, but let's be real. <laughs> Guys, I've been angry at some of you for being too angry at times. I've been angry at others of you for being too nice. I can get angry when you're distant, and I can definitely get angry when you're too close and up in my business. Jesus' words today in our scripture are very challenging. He says, if you are worshiping in the temple, you're doing like the highest act of worship. You're offering a gift in the temple, and you remember that someone out there has someone against you. Leave your gift and go to them. Man. Like, 
stop worshiping and make peace when there's something between you and another person? But when is there not something between you and another person? Well, here's the good news about that, if it's as common as I'm saying. The dirt between us is actually the soil in which the kingdom grows. The one who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, then goes in and overturns tables in the temple, also rides in between each one of us and declares that if we want to genuinely worship him, reconciliation is not an option. Don't, don't waste too much time splitting hairs about what Jesus means when he says angry, you know, or what, what the words fool mean in this sentence. Instead, like, let's take a look at what we're to do about it. So from our scripture today, the, the bit I read at the beginning, the first thing is when we've done wrong, when we're the cause of the brokenness and we know it. Here you are offering your gift, a special time of worship. You realize you've done something to anger your brother or sister. Your fellow believer has something against you. There's, or, or it's not just your brother or sister. There's an adversary who has a legal cause against you. In these cases, you are the offender. And Jesus' words are stark. Like, leave your gift. As far as it depends on you, this is a wise addition that Paul adds in the book of Romans. As far as it depends on you, sometimes there's things you can't do. Make peace with one another. Be at peace with all. Gosh, considering the commands of Jesus, it strikes me that the command to right relationship like this, like leaving worship and going to reconcile, um, in his teaching, it receives more emphasis than right belief. I'm not saying it's more important necessarily, but it, it get, he talks about it more than right belief. The offering of the gift at the altar, that's an act of theology. That's, our, that's worship in action. I've, here's how you make peace with God. That's your theology. But what if your theology is distorted while relationships in your life are tangled up and you've taken no action? The implication Jesus is making is you're not actually able to worship yet. You're not able to. Church, Christian history would be so different if we said reconciled relationships are the core aspect of our theology. Not more important than theology, but the core aspect of our theology. You see, from the beginning, we've divided over right ways to worship, right? It's like, well, this guy's offering his gift at the altar in this way, and this guy's offering the gift at the altar this way, and this guy's saying we don't even need an altar. Three different denominations, right? That's what we do. The, the further I go, the more I wonder if theology is sometimes a cover for us not liking each other and struggling with each other. Man, would there be... 40,000 denominations and counting if we took Jesus' words here seriously. In this first example, um, Jesus speaks to us when we're the cause of relational brokenness. Whether it's a brother or an adversary, if we've wronged them and we know it, he says, initiate 
Go and, you know, when you realize, yep, go and initiate the healing. That, that actually makes sense. That makes sense, right? Every one of you knows when you're in your right mind, if I'm the one who did something wrong, I should go and try to make it right. Go humbly, try to make it right. Own it, confess it, restore it, take responsibility for it. But that's the part Jesus talks about the least in the Sermon on the Mount. He speaks more to the people on the other side of the conflict. So when we're the one who's done wrong, but then he goes to when we've been wronged. He spends significantly more time addressing this. When we've been badly wronged. When there is an evildoer in his words. When there's an oppressor. When someone stole from you or borrowed from you and doesn't repay. Take, look, at, look at what Jesus says later on. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. Whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your coat also. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you. Do not reject the one who wants to borrow from you. Here's the deal in Jesus's kingdom. The weakest people in Jesus's kingdom, the weakest people have the most power. That's what he's saying here. The weakest people have the most power. Blessed are the poor, the persecuted, the meek, those who mourn. How are they the most powerful? Well, because they have discovered a truth that no matter how much has been taken away from you, no matter how much abuse you've suffered, because you are made in the image of God, you have within you the capacity to forgive. No one can steal that. It can't ever be stolen away from you. Never. No matter how much else has happened. While there is breath in your lungs and thoughts in your head, by the edict of King Jesus, you have the capacity. I mean, listen to the hardest line of the Lord's Prayer later in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we say all this stuff about his kingdom coming, his will being done, and the daily bread, that's great. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Well, you could ignore that, but Jesus won't let you. He finishes teaching about the Lord's Prayer, and he, the only part of the Lord's Prayer that he talks about is that line. For if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive you your sins. This is a hard teaching. You want to talk about denying yourself? Look, I, I want to I be really sensitive here because some of you have experienced significant abuse in your life. Significant abuse. As I'm presenting this overarching generic concept about Jesus's kingdom of peace, I'm painting with a broad brush. It is really important to identify the fact that forgiveness cannot be forced on anyone. All right? Like I could not say to you, before you're ready, you have to forgive them. That's, that's not okay. That's another form of abuse, honestly. Okay? So please keep that caveat in mind. This is an invitation, and in the invitation, even those who have suffered the worst kinds of abuse are invited into a process of healing. 
Today, it is beyond the scope of my sermon to explain all of the nuances of forgiveness in different circumstances, okay? So that, that's an important teaching. I just want you to see that again, just like his words about leaving our gift at the altar. Jesus ties theology and reconciliation together. He's the king who comes to Jerusalem and declares peace to the nations. Our prayers themselves, just like our worship, will be stunted if we allow things to fester. So, when we've done wrong, when we've been wronged, he goes further. When we have enemies, enemies, the humble king on the donkey doesn't merely create peace between his followers. He creates peace with the nations. He establishes a kingdom of peace, and it will stretch from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. That's, that's Genesis language, you guys. Like, from where it all started to where it all ends. That's what will happen. Does Jesus address this? Well, of course he does. Later in the sermon, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your father in heaven since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and since rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you only greet your brothers, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? That's a hard teaching. <laughs> There's no... worldly logic that this fits into. But there's also no military might or national wealth, no coalition of nations that can possibly sweep from sea to sea, from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Genghis Khan tried it. Alexander the Great tried it. Charlemagne tried it. The British Empire tried it. You know, Putin might be trying it now. The very act of trying to conquer the globe eventually becomes self-defeating. Some who welcomed Jesus with palm branches hoped that he would have military might and strength to restore the nation of Israel, to establish Jerusalem, to rule the nations. But the human strategy would never work. There's no, there's no military power that would sweep the whole globe and it, would, it wouldn't fall apart the second it was done. The true king, the humble king who rides in on his donkey and announces peace and eventually rules, he does it by activating the power that he wrote into the design of every human being, the power to forgive. That's how he conquers. This power seeps past all defenses. It is not slowed by persecution or imprisonment. In fact, I think oppression is a conductor for this power to go faster. But the power needed to be activated in us. We we can't do it on our own. It needs to be given to us from the outside. This power is a power that no one can take away from us, but it is always a gift from God. It is always a gift from God. In that last bit of scripture I read, Jesus describes God like this. He's the father who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, he generously cares for his friends and for his enemies. 
And when we join Jesus' kingdom, we get to be like God. There's a line in the Sermon on the Mount, a command, a command. Jesus expects us to do it in the Sermon on the Mount that has baffled people for generations. Here it is. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I've always struggled with that. Like, how, how can you be perfect as God is perfect? He's, he's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He has all the power. He's the source of all love and good. I can't do that. Sorry. <laughs> Neither can you. But that sentence is at the end of a paragraph. The one I just read. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Greet people that you don't want to greet on the road. Our Father causes sun to the sun to rise and the rain to fall and the righteous and the wicked. So be perfect like him. In other words, friends. You want the kingdom of God to grow in your life? Love your enemies. Friends, Jesus believes that this is possible. He makes it possible in us. How? We were his enemies. But we've been restored into the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ experienced all of the abandonment, neglect, abuse, betrayal, persecution, condemnation, and indebtedness that the world has ever known. It all got piled onto him. Humble, riding on a donkey, removing the war horse and the battle bow. How? By aiming them at himself. That's how. How would the kingdom of the donkey-riding king conquer? How can we believe in his power? Like, how does this make any sense? Well, here we are in Littleton in the year 2022 talking about this king. Friends, it has spread from shore to shore. It's spread from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. We're living, we're like, it's, it's gone. It's crazy. Not by military might. In fact, whenever Christians have taken up arms, it has slowed down. It has slowed down. 2,000 years later, we're, the, we're on the other side of the globe in a different language, worshiping him because he died for us. Because he forgave us rather than visiting us with wrath. And we get to do the same with one another. There's a gift on the altar, and it has been left on the altar. And the one on the altar went, and even though he was not the perpetrator, he left the altar, and he made peace with us. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, Take this and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim his victory that he announced on Palm Sunday with kids and palm branches and cloaks on the ground and a little donkey 
And that victory is still spreading today. You might need to make peace with someone before you come to the table. I know that there are people in this congregation who sometimes will come up and get the bread and put it in their pocket and go home to work out an issue between them before they eat it. You might need to do that. But he has made peace with you, and this is our celebration of that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have given us your body in this bread and shed your blood in this cup for us. Thank you. Lord, thank you because we are a mess. Lord, we're a mess. I'm painfully boring and angry and unreasonable all the time. And yet you, Lord, have made peace with me. You have gone to the bitter end to restore me to yourself. And that's true for every single person in this room. Lord, thank you. Thank you for going to that extent for us. Hallelujah. We love you. So as we come, Lord, to the table, Lord, establish your peace in us. Proclaim it from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth all the way to Littleton. In Jesus' name, amen.